At this time, please open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3 through 16. I'd also encourage you to follow along with the sermon outline, which you can find on our online bulletin. So Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 3. God came from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Peran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His greatness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and died. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Amen. Everyone likes a good story. One of my favorite stories is the Chronicles of Narnia stories written by C.S. Lewis. In an early part of the story, a talking beaver tells the four children who have entered into the magical land of Narnia. They say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. Now at that time in the story, none of the children knew that Aslan was a powerful lion who was in fact the king above all high kings in Narnia. But as soon as Beaver said that Aslan was coming, all of the children felt quite different inside of them. Lewis described the feelings of the children in this way. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand. But in the dream, it feels as if it has some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life, 
and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. In Habakkuk chapter 3, the prophet Habakkuk says something to give genuine hope to the people of Israel. The people must have felt hopeless when they heard about how God was going to use the wicked and fierce Babylonians to bring judgment upon Israel for her many sins. But now Habakkuk tells Israel, the glory of God comes. The awesome and amazing glory of God is coming, and Israel is going to see it with her own eyes. What a word of hope! But the word of hope that Habakkuk had for Israel was similar to the word of hope that Beaver spoke to the children in Narnia. While this word about the coming glory of God was a dream for some people, it was a nightmare for others. Why is that the case? Because when God's glory comes to earth, it comes in different ways. Let's look this morning at the two different ways that God's glory comes. And let us as God's people be prepared to see it. First of all, the glory of God comes in salvation. We have read many verses in this part of Habakkuk's prayer. So let me point out to you what I think is the key verse. Verse 13. The first part of verse 13 says, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Everything that God does in history is done for a reason. And what is that reason? God always acts for the salvation of his people. You might think that the book of Habakkuk is simply a book of God's judgment. Oh, those disobedient Israelites, they're sinning again. So here comes another round of God's judgment. Well, it is certainly true that God's judgment has been a major part of Habakkuk's wrestling with God in his prayers. But the whole point of his wrestling match has been for God to reveal to Habakkuk salvation for God's own within the context of judgment. Yes, God was bringing judgment, but those judgments are put in the framework of God's plan to ultimately save a people for himself. And in order for Habakkuk to give the people of Israel hope for their future salvation, he had them look back at their past salvation. Habakkuk is telling Israel, God is coming in his glory. And so he reminds them in verse 3, God came. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These geographical places refer to how God moved in bringing the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land. God showed his glory, not just in sending plagues of judgment on Egypt, but he showed his glory primarily in saving his chosen people from slavery and harm. Habakkuk then reminds Israel of her past experience in order to stir up a future expectation of salvation. The prophet is praying 
if God saved us from the mighty Egyptians in the past, won't he save us from the mighty Babylonians in the future? Of course he will. God is the same today as he was then. So put your faith in God that you will see his glory again. He will once again act to save his people. Do you know what one of the best tools is for overcoming fear? It is a good memory. You need a good memory of what God has done for you in the past. When I first arrived here at Hope Baptist 19 years ago, the church had a few major decisions that it was facing. We were trying to decide if we were going to hire an associate pastor of some kind. And at the same time, we were trying to decide if we were going to stay on this particular piece of property in Manchester or move somewhere else. Now, nobody likes uncertainty. It's kind of scary to be uncertain about your future. So what did God do for us as a church? He made it clear that we should hire the associate pastor first, an associate pastor who turned into Pastor Travis. And then a few years later, God made it clear that we should stay on this land and build here. God turned our fear and uncertainty into a direction forward as we waited on him. He saved us in uncertain times. Now, are we facing uncertain times today as a church? I would say that life in a pandemic is pretty much the definition of uncertainty. Nobody knows what tomorrow holds. So why can we be confident in these uncertain times? God saved us in uncertain times in the past, and so we can believe with faith that God will save us in our uncertain times today. God does not change. God always acts to save his people. And when God saves us, we see his glory. Now, usually when you hear the word glory, you think of brilliant light. And that is what we see when God saves his people in Habakkuk chapter 3. We read in verses 3 and 4, His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. What do we see when God rises up and he saves his people? Glory, splendor, majesty. Shining excellence, light, beauty. The primary way that God has acted in history to save his people is through Jesus, our Savior. And how is Jesus described in John chapter 1 and verse 5? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is this brilliant, glorious light. He is so bright that no darkness can overcome him when he comes to save us. How powerful is the light 
and the salvation that God brings. Habakkuk describes the power of God to save in two primary ways. God has power over the nature that we see, and God has power over all the nations that we see. We have already seen in verse 4 God's power over nature. The picture in that verse of brightness, rays of light flashing from God's hand and veiling his power in that hand is a reminder of the glory of God that the people saw at Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses. At that time, the mountain shook. It shook with an earthquake. And there were flashes of lightning all around the mountain. And smoke was all around the people on that day. God showed his glory to his people in nature. And in fact, God uses nature itself as his weapons to help to save his people. God doesn't use bows and swords to save his people as his weapons. He doesn't even use bombs and guns to save us. God instead uses the nature that he created to fight on behalf of his people. We read in verse 8, Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? The Lord, we know, used the Red Sea, the Jordan River, and the River Kishon to fight against Israel's enemies and move his chosen people to a fuller possession of the promised land. Then in verse 11, we read about how the sun and the moon stood still in their place. And we remember how God caused the sun and moon to stand still so that Joshua could have more time to defeat Israel's enemies one day. God showed his glory and his power over nature to save his people in the past. And God would show his glory in the same way in the future, to defeat the Babylonians. Maybe this time around, the river Euphrates is the future object of the wrath of God when God acts to save his people from the Babylonians. But God not only shows his power over nature when he acts to save his people, he also shows his power over all of the nations. We have already seen how God showed his power over the Egyptians when he saved Israel in Moses' day. In verse 7, we read about a few other nations that God had saved Israel from in the days of the judges. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. The fact that God saved Israel from powerful nations in the past should have given Israel hope that God would also save Israel from the Babylonians in the future. And the same thing is true for us with regard to our future as we ourselves deal with wicked nations today. Listen to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 24. And verse 30. 
Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus is coming to save his church. We will see the glory of Jesus. We will see him fight for us to defeat our enemies. And so don't be discouraged by your powerful enemies today. Jesus is on the move. We are going to see his glory. Look up. He is coming to save you. The glory of God comes in salvation. And the glory of God also comes in judgment. I mentioned earlier that verse 13 is perhaps the key verse here in this section of chapter 3. Let's look now at the second part of this verse. You crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. God will show his glory by coming in judgment for the enemies of God's people. This is not a pleasant picture, is it? We like the idea of seeing God's glory come in salvation for his people. But some Christians today seem embarrassed by the idea that God also comes in judgment against the enemies of God's people. These Christians don't want to talk about or think about all that the Bible has to say about the wrath of God. But I wonder if we really need to shy away from speaking today about God's anger. Recently, I heard a story about a woman. She had become very angry, and she did not know what to do with her anger. She was full of rage. You see, this woman had heard from her niece that her niece had been raped by her boss. Her niece was full of shame and pain over what had happened to her. And yet this boss was not going to be held responsible for this crime. And so all that this woman was left with was the anger. Anger over what had happened to her beloved niece. Let me ask you, what do you think God feels about what has happened to, to this precious niece? I think God feels anger. I think God feels wrath about this injustice. And unless this boss repents of his sin, God will come in glorious judgment as the Holy One to address this boss's crime. I think then that it is a good thing that God gets angry. It's a good thing that God gets angry about sin. I think it's a good thing that God comes in glorious wrath against sin. In his prayer, Habakkuk reminded Israel of how God displayed his wrath against the Egyptians. We read in verse 5, before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. 
God advanced with frightening consequences against the enemies of his people. As the light, God brings with him the penetrating, destructive force of divine judgment. And God did not just send plagues against Israel's enemies in the days of Moses. He would send plagues against his enemies even today as well. Sparks will spring up as the Lord's feet strike the earth, according to verse 5. Our God is indeed a holy, consuming fire. And we will see that glorious fire when God comes in judgment against his people's enemies. We will also see the glory of God come in judgment in another way, according to verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. God comes in glory. And what does he do? He stands and he looks at the people of the earth. And with his look, he takes the measure of the people. He judges them with his all-seeing eyes. And the people are startled by his look. They tremble with fear when they see God the judge looking at them. I am reminded in this verse of one of my teachers. Some teachers raise their voice when you do something wrong. But not my math teacher, not Miss Shea. She just raised her eyebrow. She just gave you the look, a look that is similar to the look of the lady in this picture I brought with me today. It was a look that said to us, what are you doing? It didn't take long before I realized I did not want to see Mache give me that look. If she gave you the look, you were done for. How much more is that the case with Almighty God? His eyes can produce fear when they see God come and look at their lives in judgment. His eyes produce fear in all who see that look in God's eyes. We see one other way that God judges his enemies in verse 14. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. The enemies of God's people are going to be severely humiliated. They are going to destroy themselves with their own weapons. God is going to turn the strength of the enemy against itself. Habakkuk then is telling the Israelites, don't be afraid of the Babylonians. Don't be afraid of their strength. Their great power only displays their capacity to destroy themselves. In the same way, we should not be afraid of the power of the enemies of the church. Eventually, our enemies will destroy themselves with their own weapons. Just like Daniel's enemies 
were eventually thrown into the lion's den that they intended to use to destroy Daniel, so God's enemies will also eventually destroy themselves. As we think about the glorious coming of God in judgment, let's remember a few things. God does not destroy the wicked for the sake of destroying the wicked. That is not his point. God judges the wicked for the sake of his beloved people. God loves the church. God has a special people, and he saves those people from their enemies. But let us also remember that some of the people that God was going to judge in Habakkuk's day were the people of Israel. After all, the fact that there were violent, wicked Israelites was what caused Habakkuk to get into the wrestling ring with God in prayer in the first place. Habakkuk wondered why God wasn't doing anything about the wickedness of his own people. Well, God was doing something. He was preparing to bring judgment against the people of Israel, judgment that would come through the nation of Babylon. So verse 16, Habakkuk responds to what he sees God preparing to do. And Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. It's very comforting to know that God is coming in judgment against your enemies who have hurt you. But it is terrifying to know that God is coming in judgment for you because you have sinned against other people. So what do you do when you are in Habakkuk's position? What do you do when you know that it is you who have sinned and deserve the judgment of God? Or in Habakkuk's case, when his nation has sinned and deserves God's judgment. You need to remember who God is. Listen to this description of God in Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Church, God does not punish us as we deserve. Why not? Because more than 600 years after God sent the, Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk to speak to his people in Israel, God sent Jesus to earth to die on the cross for our sins. And only the cross reveals what it costs God to punish sin without punishing us. It costs God 
the life of his son. What incredible love. In fact, what infinite love. It is love so infinite and so glorious that infinite distances, as far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are above the earth, only these infinite distances are used to reveal God's infinite love for us. Thank God for that infinite love today. Praise Him for the glory of His love and the glory of His salvation. Church, we need to worship God for His glory. The glory of God is coming. It comes in both the salvation of His people and in the judgment of God's enemies. It's not always easy to worship God for His coming glory. Sometimes we tremble like Habakkuk trembled when we see God's glory coming not only in salvation, but also in judgment. After all, judgment begins with the house of God. But you can still worship today. You can worship God with hope for the coming of His glory. That glory is most definitely coming. It is coming in salvation. And it is coming in judgment. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful that we are going to see the glory of God. We are grateful that that glory is coming. We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see that glory as it arrives. Help us to see the glory of your salvation as you do all that you do to bring to us the salvation that we need. Help us also, O Lord, to look out for the judgment that is coming as well. Lord, your enemies are not going to get away with their sin. They will be judged because you are an angry God when it comes to sin. Thank you that you are a God who deals with sin. Thank you that you don't look the other way. We thank you instead that you judge sin and you will judge those who have hurt your people. God, how great you are. How glorious you are. May we worship you this week because your glory is coming in both salvation and judgment. In your great name we pray. Amen.